Well, you don't have to spend much time watching television or flipping through the channels before you run across a crime show. I mean, you can hardly escape it. The only time you can really escape it is if you're on a sports-only channel or if somehow it's Christmas and there's cartoons or uh, Hallmark movies or some other holiday special that's going to like give you a break from the crime shows, because they're everywhere. And the, the reality is that there are far more crime shows than there's actually crime. There are far more murders on TV than there are actual murders, which is good, right? <laughs> but all of us are familiar with uh, a story, several stories. My my family has just uh, has taken to rewatching the Newhart shows, and the episode, one of the episodes we watched this last week, was of uh, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl, who were wrongly accused of stealing a cow and storing it in their basement. And as as uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, as Bob Newhart uh, represented them in the court of law. He, uh, he falsely accused uh, someone else of framing them when, in fact, the, um, there was somebody in the, uh, actually, the, uh, the one who was accusing them framed them. And so there's this weird thing where nobody really knew, did Larry, Daryl, and Daryl steal the cow? Or did the real estate developer steal the cow so he could get the restaurant for, you know, cheap? Or did the farmer actually plant the cows in their basement? That's actually what happened. Just spoiler alert, right? It only happened three decades ago. Anyway, nobody really knew who stole the cow. We have this morning in Romans chapter 7, smooth transition here, right? (laughs) We have a false accusation in Romans chapter 7, that uh, some have misunderstood Paul to be fingering the wrong culprit when it comes to uh, what it is that uh, brings death to human beings. Some said, some misunderstood him to say that it actually was the law that was bringing death. And that was a big deal, because if you were a Jewish person, your identity was found in keeping the law. To, to grow up a Jew was to, to, have, to revere and to care about God's law and what God said really beyond anything else. In fact, that, that's, that's justified because in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is what it says, and what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today. In other words, their identity as a great nation depended on God's law. And so when Paul starts talking about being set free from the law and how the law was part of what brought them death, they, they're quite alarmed that in fact Paul is somehow accusing their precious law of being the thing that brought death. 
And so he launches a defense of the law. And he does it, he does it really by making a case against something else. So, uh, this is very much like Larry, Daryl, and Daryl being on trial for stealing a cow. That they actually didn't steal. Because the law actually didn't murder. It was a different culprit. And so let's read Romans chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 7. And as we read, as we read through here, I want you to, I want you to kind of be alert for the means, the motive, and the opportunity. Okay, see if you can see who the real culprit is. Romans chapter 7, beginning verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So you see, the, the defense is set to defend the law because the question is, what are we going to say? Is the law sin? If we're set free from the law so that we're not uh, accused by it any longer, is that because it was bad? Was the law the instrument of causing our death? That's, that's the question here. And the question particularly raised by those in the church with a Jewish background and the love for the law. And his answer then is by no means. Because if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. So if you see this courtroom scene, you, you see this, this uh, unusual turn by the defense attorney to say, if it had not been for law, I would not have known sin. He points the finger at the perpetrator. I would not have known sin. And so what he does here in this little defense is to, is to point out that it isn't the law, it's sin which is the uh, culprit. Sin which is the murderer. Sin which is the thing that brings death. Not the law. And then he says, why? For I would not have known 
what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It's interesting, he jumps right to coveting. Thou shalt not covet, you may recognize, is one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's number ten. Which means that in order to get to number ten, he skips one through nine, and he jumps straight to number ten. Shall not covet. And the thing that the law does for us with respect to coveting, now, to, to, to covet is to desire something that doesn't belong to you. Okay, the, the tenth commandment goes on to say, you don't covet your neighbor's uh, possessions, you don't covet his wife, you don't covet his servants, you don't covet his land, you don't covet, covet the, the things that belong to somebody else. Thou shalt not desire those things. And what he's done then is to, is to skip to, to number 10 and to point out that the problem is not the external things that you do. The problem is your heart. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. I would not have known what it was to desire Something I shouldn't desire. I would not have known that it was that the very desiring of something I had no right to was a problem. So I, I could see stealing that thing being a problem, or I could see murdering that person being a problem, or lying about something to be a problem, but I, thinking about it? But scheming about it? But hoping for it, that's a problem. And all of a sudden, sin went from being external and something that I do to something that I am. Something that, I, um, that is internal. So that I can't really ever escape its influence. That's what he means when he says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet. I wouldn't have known that this heart that beats within my chest beats for the wrong thing. And he goes on to say, sin. Sin is the culprit. Sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So, here we have our opportunity, right? So, we're going to figure out who done it. You need an opportunity. Sin has no alibi. Sin has taken an opportunity through this commandment. So, as soon as the commandment came, do not covet, then all of a sudden I realize that I have these desires that are inappropriate. When Sid said, do not covet, all of a sudden... I wanted those things. And sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now I want to stop here because we have a couple assumptions that don't work very well in real life and they don't work very well with this text. One of the assumptions we have, it's the opposite of the Jewish assumption. The Jewish assumption is that the law is, 
is good and Paul was blaming the law. Our assumption is that the law is bad. That somehow anything that is law is bad. And Paul is defending the law here, saying, no, the law itself is good. And we'll see that again more clearly in a moment. But, but our assumption is different than the assumption of the hearers. On that regard, the other thing that is different is that our assumption, our assumption about sin is not quite what it needs to be. When I think about sin, I think about those little things that I do. Those acts, those words that come out. I didn't mean for them to come out. I didn't want them to come out, but they came out. I think about those little um, thoughts that I have. And I think about sin as my own activity. Let me say it that way. The thing that results from Scott doing what he shouldn't do. That's sin. That doesn't work in this text. Because you'll notice, now this is just uh, going back to your uh, English class in, in seventh grade. But sin, okay, if you look at that sentence, what role does the word sin play in the sentence? Sin is the subject of the sentence. Sin is the one doing the action. It's not the result of my activity. It's not the result of me doing anything. Sin itself is the actor in this sentence. In other words, as Paul understands sin, understands this culprit, he understands it to have a power of its own. To have a life of its own. In fact, if you have seriously addressed your own sin, you do recognize that sin, in a very real sense, has a life of its own. You've tried to, to get under control some... Um, some bad habit of yours and you, and you just struggle against it and you can't break it. Because sin has a life of its own. And here what he has is that the sin is as, it's as though sin is a person acting to produce covetousness. If you think about that, that changes the way you relate to your sins. You're not trying to manage these little things that you do that you shouldn't do or these thoughts that you think that you shouldn't think. Really, you are doing combat with a personal and powerful enemy. Sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So we have as though the sin is a, a, a factory that once the command comes in, it's like the plug is pushed, is plugged into the wall and the machine starts producing covetousness. When the command said, don't. And I have all sorts of covetousness that comes and I, I desire all sorts of things and my heart is, uh, as it says in Jeremiah, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's what sin does to me. 
And so opportunity is when the command comes, uh, sin produces uh, all sorts of uh, acts of sin, acts of covetousness. This, this sin power is at work in us. And I was trying to think, how, how does that work? It's like sin is this invisible power. You can't look at something and say, well, that's, you know, that's what Paul's talking about. That's the sin. It's invisible. It's like gravity. Where gravity is this invisible power that holds you to the ground. And you could say, gravity caused me to fall. Or gravity produced these bruises on my knee when I fell. You could say that. It's this invisible power. Produce all sorts of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. It, sin gets its power from the law. There is this relationship between the law and sin. And so when there is no law, sin is not near as interesting. Sin is not near as powerful. Sin is not near as active. But as soon as the law comes in, then sin begins to get fired up. And the opposite is true. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. And so just as the prohibition to, um, to do something causes the desire to do it, so when that commandment came, so sin comes alive. And so the struggle then is this relationship, this really tight relationship that sin and the law have together. How is sin bad and the law good? That's, what he's, that's, that's part of his defense here. And we're going to get to it. We're going to get to really kind of the heart of the goodness of the law. He says the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law itself is good. The law itself promises life. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, in Leviticus 18.5, it says, you shall therefore keep My statutes and My rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The commandment promised life. And so hearing this, what would someone do? They would try harder. They would double down their efforts. They would try and be a good little boy or girl in hopes to please the One who gave them the command. And that effort then to please God, that effort even to earn their own righteousness by keeping the law was the occasion by which sin... Uh, took advantage of them. And so the, the very thing that promised to be life, sin used and it became death. So the, the means of sin committing murder was the law or the commandment. It, it, it was a very opportunity and the very means by which it 
took advantage of us. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived and killed. So again, you see sin personified as a power that is deceitful and murderous. I want to spend just a minute thinking about this because this is where our struggle is. Because this is not... (laughs) This is not a, a fanciful crime that we watch. It's fictional somehow that we watch and, and has no effect on us. The reality is that we are not watching uh, this, this crime play out or this accusation uh, or courtroom drama play out in front of us for our entertainment. The reality is that if the perpetrator is not exposed, then you will be the next victim. That's the problem. I will be the next victim. If I don't really see exactly how sin is going about killing people, more specifically, how it will go about killing me, then I am destined to be the next victim. And so, it's important that we step back a little bit and think about how sin uses the law as the means and opportunity to deceive us and kill us. And the best place to go for that is back to the beginning. Because in Genesis, in Genesis God gave the command and sin killed Adam and Eve. So look at this. Genesis 2 It says, the Lord commanded the man, Adam, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so here you have the commandment, you shall not eat of the, no, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the commandment. And we don't know. We don't have any kind of time frame. We don't, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. How many days, years, months that they went on with a blissful and perfect life. We don't know that. But I suspect it wasn't very long. Because you have you have sin personified acting to deceive them and kill them. I want you to see this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, notice his lead statement here. What is his lead statement about? It's about the command of God. It casts doubt on what God said. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? That's the opening line. That's the, that's the very first conversation the serpent has with Eve. To call into question the command of God. 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now the interesting thing is, God gave a command, you shall not eat. The serpent questioned the command. And Eve treated the command as though it were worse than it is. The command was good. If, if you eat from the tree, you'll die, so don't eat from the tree. That's a good thing, right? Don't die. Now, the serpent questions it, and Eve is a little bent out of shape. He, I don't think we should even... He didn't want us to even touch it. But he didn't say that. Then the serpent said to the woman, Oh, you won't, you won't surely die. And now, she's faced with a choice. Do I accept the command of God or do I accept the lie of the serpent? And he continues, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this first command, don't eat from the tree, all of a sudden has become... God has special privileges as God. And he wants you to he wants to keep you from having those privileges. God has a special place and God has special abilities because he's God and he doesn't want you to have those. The subtext then is wouldn't it be nice to have those? Don't you really want to know good from evil? And you see what's happening, right? The command came. Sin took advantage of the command and produced all kinds of desires in Adam and Eve. Covetousness. They wanted what God had. That's exactly what's happening. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and a tree was to be desired to make one wise, you know it. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so what you find is that the serpent acts as sin personified. So that he subdues and brings into bondage the man and the woman. So that then forever on, their children would be born into slavery to sin. So that from that point forward, everything that it meant to be human 
would be in bondage to this power of sin. So that sin then would easily exert the power over men and women and cause them to die. And you could think of sin as as the very power of Satan over you and over me. Because what he did was he deceived the man and the woman. And by deceiving them about the commandment, killed them. And the same thing happens every day to you and to me. When you think about all the little whispers that you hear in your head when you're tempted, it won't matter. Nobody will know. It's not a big deal. Okay? Sounds very much like the whispering of the serpent to Eve. Very much like the taking advantage of the commandment so that it brings death. His conclusion then is that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So if the law were not holy and righteous and good, then there would be no standard to lay alongside the the awfulness and and the evilness of sin. So we wouldn't know how awful and evil sin is compared to how good God is. It is the law that reveals God's character as holy and righteous and good. All throughout the New Testament, it reiterates the same message that is clear in uh, the entire Bible. That the law is good. And so this good law, this good law is used by this powerful force for evil to kill me. And if the gold standard is not there, the law is not there, then sin lies Powerless. But sin uses the law. So did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It it wasn't what was good that brought death. It was sin that brought death. Don't finger the wrong culprit. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good. And now... Now we have the motive. Now we have the motive. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. In order that sin might be seen for what it is. See, most of the time, you and I, we don't see sin for what it is. Sin is a mistake. It's an addiction. It's a misstep. It's a problem. The law, being holy and righteous and good, comes in and it tells us, no, sin is warped. Sin is ugly. Sin is the attack on the character of God. Sin is is the very thing that would destroy what God loves by bringing death to human beings. Sin is awful. And it's the 
the holiness and the righteousness of God made manifest in His holy law, which shows us the awfulness of sin. And so you need the law. You need God's Word which makes clear His character and His standards. If you don't have it, you're awash in understanding the problems that you have every day. That our culture has all around us. You see, ultimately... It's this good and holy and righteous law of God that helps us understand the misbehavior of our politicians. It's this holy, righteous, and good standard of God that helps us to recognize the evil that is so prominent with entertainers and news anchors and other politicians throughout our country. It is not someone's opinion about what is good and what is not good. It is this righteous and clear standard of God that displays what sin is. And so rather than being bad, the law is actually holy and righteous and good. And it shows us the true colors of sin. And it is through the commandment that sin becomes sinful beyond measure. The the Greek word underneath sinful beyond measure is hyperbole. Sin becomes hyperbolic. It is larger than life. It is worse than you could possibly imagine. Now, I'm, I'm just trying to think about the way that I think about sin. I think about sin as something that maybe I want to avoid, that's sort of minor, that is a nuisance, or maybe an aggravation, something that is a, um, a small problem in my life. What the law tells us is that sin is an enormous catastrophe for the human race. That every single person has no greater enemy than sin itself. That your sin or your your rebellion against God, your active disobedience to His command, it is, it's worse than death because it's sin that brings death. Sin itself is worse than hell because hell is just a punishment and sin is the crime. Sin is worse than the devil because it is the devil that, that encourages sin, but it's the sin that brings the death. 
And so ultimately, it's that very thing. If there is, if there is no sin, there is no problem. And, you know, you've seen other definitions of sin. It's a transgression of the law. If you're guilty in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing, James 2.10. Sin is um, falling short of the glory of God. What sin is, is sin is the attack on all that God is, all that God loves, and all that God um, does. So that all of the good things that God does for us are corroded by sin. I just uh, have been thinking about how good God is to you and to me. He's good. He gives us um, He gives us a beautiful place to live. He gives us people in our lives to love us. He gives us material things to support us. And what happens? We begin to love the creature rather than the Creator. And sin enters and it warps our enjoyment. Sin comes in and sin gives us expectations of what uh, we should have that are unrealistic and not right so that we can enjoy the good gifts God gives us. I mean, how many of you living in Oregon and you have sunshine in December have complained about how cold it is? I mean, really. Or the wind. There is always something, isn't there? That sin... And it's not the goodness of the gift. It's the sin inside that comes in and corrupts what is good. I mean, how good, how good would families be if there was no sin? How good would uh, the, the fellowship that you have with dear friends be if there wasn't sin that came between you? There wasn't misunderstanding. There wasn't the desire not to see that person because they make me feel uncomfortable. Oh, those things just are always there. Because sin is attacking. This power is constantly attacking God. Attacking God's good gifts. Attacking the very people that God loves. And the commandment is here so that you might recognize that sin is not merely something to be managed, but something to be um, hated. Something to be avoided at all costs. Something that will ultimately destroy you. And so, in this court case here that he has to defend the law, he turns and says, no, it's not the law that kills you. The law is good. Rather, it's sin which takes opportunity through the law, which uses the command, which then destroys 
the very people that God loves. And so it's sin that's the problem. It's not. It's not the law. And the commandment is sinful, he says, beyond measure. Now, I, I don't know how else, really. Words just fail me to tell you how awful sin is. One of my best attempts would just be to go back to remind you of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What you get from your sin, from your acts of sin, when you bow to the power of sin, you get what you deserve. Which is ultimately to die and be separated from God forever. But on the other hand, I must also tell you that this whole story about the law, this whole story about the sin, this whole, this whole picture that we're being, um, that's being laid out in front of us in Romans is ultimately about Jesus Christ being given to us as a Savior. So while the wages of sin is death, this free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. While sin would force you to do what's contrary to God and would by that kill you, God reverses that and He offers the very sinner that is violating God's glory God offers that very sinner a gift. A gift of forgiveness. A gift of freedom. A gift of love. A gift of acceptance. A gift of reconciliation. A gift of His Son. So that you might not experience death, but rather experience eternal life. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because you've kept the law, because you haven't. He doesn't do it because you're pretty good or you're better than the people who are outside of church this morning. You're not. He does it because it is a free gift. It is his prerogative to be generous. It is his prerogative to love you and to give you his son and by giving you his son to offer you eternal life and a chance to be free from this dominion of sin. And so the question for all of us this morning, are, are, we, are we going to depend then on our own performance or our own attempt to keep the law and to do our best and to try and make God somehow accept us because we've done pretty well? See, that's the law. That's the very thing that sin takes advantage of. Or are we going to essentially surrender and say, you know what? I lose at that game. I can't do it. And sin takes advantage of it and it kills me. So, instead, I'm simply going to receive what God offers me in His Son. So that my sins can be forgiven so that I can receive the righteousness of God and be 
reconciled to Him. You see, the Gospel is so beautiful in part because sin is so awful. And because eternal life and the, the, the remedy for that sin is so precious. So I didn't want to leave I didn't want to leave this morning just talking to you about the awfulness of sin and the power that it has over you because that power is not ultimate. That power is broken by Jesus who stands before you today and every day as your Savior from that awful power of sin. And the question is, will you submit to Him as your Savior? If you will, He stands ready to give you eternal life in places of the wages of sin. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are, um, we are helpless against sin when we try and operate under the law. Father, would You please rescue us? Would You cause us to cry out in faith to Jesus? And Father, even when we're faced with a a momentary, instantaneous decision to sin, and we feel its power, would You grant to us grace 